We are looking this morning at Proverbs chapter 11, and I have very good news for you little theologians. Um, When do you get to draw a picture of a pig with a, a gold ring in its snout? I mean, that doesn't happen very often, right? And, and if mom and dad are okay with it, I'm okay with it. Do that uh, this morning. A pig with a gold ring uh, in his snout. That's the very last verse of our passage. By the way, I think that pig may be in the passage, not so that we can point fingers at others, but so that we can point our finger at ourselves. That pig might be often how we act, even as Christians. We're looking this morning at Proverbs chapter 11, and we will begin at verse uh, 10 together. But let's uh, begin, first of all, with this. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we love your word, and we ask that you would help us to love it more, even over the course of this sermon. We thank you for this time, and we trust that you will use uh, the words of my lips for your good purposes, uh, that you might uh, teach us about yourself through your holy scripture. Thank you for this moment, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11 But let's begin at verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. A gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured. An evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. This is the word of our Lord. Well, it tends to be the case with Proverbs, doesn't it, that it's very difficult to, to stitch them together. They feel uh, disconnected. They come to us in uh, rapid fire. But uh, I'll argue this morning that uh, all of uh, these particular Proverbs and these verses are attached to the imagery of a city, of a city. Now, all, not all of these verses seem to feed that image of a city, but uh, to a large degree, most of them actually do. And I want you to think about for a moment your favorite city. Uh, my favorite city, I think it's my favorite, I had several uh, come to mind, but 
one of my favorite cities, perhaps, is Bellevue, Washington. It's a big city. I like big cities. And it's a city that is outside of Seattle. It's just across Lake Washington uh, from Seattle. And while Seattle is uh, kind of old and grungy, uh, Bellevue is almost like a brand new city. Uh, There was a construction boom in the early 2000s because of all the tech companies that were moving to Bellevue. So when you walk around Bellevue, it's almost like you're walking around the city that was born a year ago. Uh, All of the skyscrapers are brand new. The streets uh, are clean. Uh, The parks look brand new. Everything is beautiful. You have a view over Lake uh, Washington. It's a great city. I've taken all of my kids to Bellevue, safe, clean, brand new. So maybe that just tells you something about who I am, but think about your own favorite city, and I wonder if you'll do the same thing I've just done. I've talked all about architecture and nothing about people. Do you do that when you think about your favorite city? When we talk about our favorite city, we don't always mean the people in that city. Uh, I have nothing against uh, the population of Bellevue, Washington, but we're really quick to think about a beautiful city in terms of its architecture and not its people. But in this passage, God is describing the beauty of a city by what? By its people, by their wisdom, their blamelessness, by their, by their righteousness. Uh, in many ways, what we're seeing in this passage is, uh, in the eyes of God, the most hospitable, beautiful city with the nicest people in the world. That's what we're seeing in this passage. As King Solomon is uh, writing to his son, you remember, that's the setting of these Proverbs, King Solomon writing to his son. Uh, he's telling his son not only how to walk in wisdom personally, with this passage, he's actually enticing the imagination of his son to consider what a city might be like if everyone in that city uh, walked in personal wisdom. You see in verse 10 and in verse 11 that a city is mentioned, and it is a city that is rejoicing. It is a city that is exalted. Now, to be honest, in this passage, there are some some bad people in the city. They're going to be described to us. They're fools, unwise, slanders, violent, evil people. They're all mentioned, but the son is being invited by his father to imagine what a city might be like if there was a large population of wise people. I think the reason King Solomon is doing this is because he is telling his son that walking in wisdom, son, is not just about you. It's about the community. Walking in wisdom is not just about you. It's about the community. And let, me, let me add um, a phrase at the, uh, at the end of that. Walking in wisdom is not just about you. It's about the community of Jesus. It's about Jesus' community. So I'll guide us, I hope, to tour this city and not point out the architecture, but instead point out the people. We'll begin by just how the city is introduced, and then we'll ask how do these people live together and how do they plan for the future. That's what we'll do. City introduced, uh, how do they live together, how do they plan for the future. First two verses, uh, we see that there is this great possibility of a city that is, that is wonderful, not merely because of its architecture, but because of its people. You see in verse 10, when 
it goes well with the righteous. The righteous is a plural body of people. When it goes well with them, the city rejoices. And then on the exact other hand, when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Think about that. It's a city in which there's real justice, apparently. Uh, The uh, righteous uh, are uh, living, and then the wicked perish. There's rejoicing and gladness in that city. In many ways, it's a perfect city, isn't it? Only the righteous seem to have a heritage in that city, a future in that city. And at some point, the wicked, they're going to be judged and they're going to be removed. Uh, This is a good thing because uh, look what the wicked have the power to do in verse 11. By their mouth, by their very words, the city is overthrown. That's not a picture of the city being overthrown by outsiders. The city is being overthrown by those who are members of the population. Can we imagine this, the city being overthrown uh, simply by the words of the inhabitants or the words of some of the inhabitants of that city? I wonder if any of you have had a small group of uh, friends destroyed because uh, one of those friends uh, begins to spread a rumor or slander that talks another of those friends into doing the same thing, and now you have two that are uh, countermanding the entire friendship. Some of you know this well because it's happening in your families. One or maybe two people destroying the peace and harmony of the, of the family, uh, holding on to old sins, uh, leveraging the family with guilt over and over again, lying and slandering. Uh, in many ways, this might be a little bit too easy for us to imagine. An entire city overthrown from the inside out. Imagine that on a scale of a thousand. The word that we have in this passage for city, it's deliberate. King Solomon isn't talking about just a tiny village. He's talking about something larger. The city of Jerusalem during the time of King Solomon uh, probably had no more than 3,000, 4,000 people that small. But keep in mind that uh, Jerusalem during the time uh, in which this was written uh, would have fit in 40 acres Now think about the smallness of the city. Forty acres, 3,000 people. That's no good for someone who's claustrophobic like me. And then to have a handful of those people beginning to slander more and more and more. How long would it take to ruin everything? We don't know how long, but it's well within the pale of imagination, isn't it? In verses 10 and 11, the son is invited to imagine something better. A city filled with righteous people, truly wise people, and the city rejoices as a result of it. The blessing of the upright that we see there in verse 11, what if that is a blessing to others? Many scholars believe that. This city is not only beautiful on the inside, but in verse 11, it's a blessing to those who are outside the city. This city is known to be better than any other city in the land. It's a city. And the son, hearing this from his father, surely would have to ask, how, dad, how? How do they live together in a city like this? How does this city function? And I think that's what verses 12 through 15 are all about. How do they live together? The son asks the father. And the father tells them, by my counting, uh, five things that characterize the inhabitants of this city. 
Five things that characterize each individual in this city such that when they're together as a populace, they're the kind of city that rejoices in gladness and blesses the nations. Now, don't list the five things right now because I'm going to state them all negatively. I believe that's what the king is saying to his father. Uh, You'll see how this goes along. I'll restate them at the end. Just listen. Verse 12, nobody in this city gloats. Nobody belittles his neighbor. That's what you see in verse 12. Nobody makes his neighbor feel unworthy. Each person treats their neighbor with more significance than they do themselves. That's an echo from Paul's letters in the New Testament. Nobody in this city gloats in verse 12. In verse 13, and nobody in this city slanders. They don't walk about slandering. That's what verse 13 means, goes about slandering. It's just what they do with their time. I don't believe we use the word slander very often. What does it mean? It means to defame someone. Maybe we use that word less frequently. To slander someone is to misrepresent them, to assassinate their character, to believe that you know more about them than they do, and let me tell you about that person. It's a city in which people are not slandering. It's a city full of trust and dignity. Many of us have thought that we live in an age that is completely without dignity. We seem to have no idea how to speak towards others and about others with civility. Civility is all but dead. We assume that everyone is out to get us. We think the worst of others. We drag people's name through the mud. We speak coarsely in public when we believe we have complete impunity because all of us are doing it together. We're all dragging each other's name through the mud. And we believe no one will challenge us. But in this city, there is a trustworthiness in spirit. You see that in verse 13? Trustworthiness in spirit. Uh, There is a kind of message of reliability. You can count on people to care for your name, and you care for the name of others. The third thing, uh, nobody in this city flies solo. Do you see that in verse 14? Verse 14, by the way, is filled with nautical imagery. It's a picture of uh, someone who is steering a ship. But look, that one person who steers the ship doesn't steer the ship alone. They take counsel. They trust others. They, in many ways, doubt themselves, and they go and look for wisdom elsewhere. In this city, nobody flies solo. The fourth thing, verse 15, and nobody in this city makes quick partnerships. You see in verse 15, there's something there about taking a pledge with someone else. This is an expansion of what we've read earlier in Proverbs. This seems to be really important to King Solomon. But the point is that nobody easily tolerates the foolishness of someone else. If someone is about to do something foolish or if someone is simply unknown to you, don't finance their project. Don't enter into a quick partnership with them. Be wary, scrupulous, critique the plans of others. It's almost like verse 15 is the very opposite of verse 14. Seek the help from others, but also when someone comes to you who doesn't want your help, only your money, then doubt them. 
Don't yoke yourself to someone's plans. Don't yoke your money. Don't yoke your time. Don't yoke your reputation to a stranger. Nobody in this city makes quick partnerships. And then finally, the last two verses there, 16 and 17, nobody in this city is violent or cruel. Uh, 16 and 17, they seem to be joined together, and when you join join them together, uh, you have a picture of a gracious woman and a kind man. Do you see that? 16 and 17, gracious woman, a kind man. The opposite of this kind of person, the gracious woman and the kind man, is the person who uh, uses violence to get what they want and the person who's horribly cruel to others. These individuals, those who use violence, those who use cruelty, ultimately they're going to bring harm on themselves. And King Solomon doesn't tell us exactly uh, who this person refers to, but the positive is very clear. Uh, King Solomon wants his son to understand that in this city, women are like God to other people. Let me tell you what's meant by that. The women are gracious, and we find graciousness all over the Old Testament as a description of God. God is gracious to His people during their deliverance from Exodus. We see the same word for kindness in Exodus all over the place. The women, they have a quality of God. They are gracious. They show favor. It can actually be understood as practicing beauty. That's what the women of this city are like. They're almost like God to others. And uh, this is even uh, more so with men. Uh, In this city, the men are hesed. That's a word that refers to the special kind of love that God has for his children. Uh, These men, they're like God in this regard. They are full of kindness. They are loving. William Tyndale joined those words together and invented loving kindness. That's why we have the word loving kindness. It's Tyndale trying to capture the meaning of this hesed love. The men of this city are loving and loyal and truthful. This is a great city. I mean, in a city like this, we should just assume that the buildings are clean and the parks are beautiful and the vista over the water is enrapturous. But from the perspective of God, he wants us to see the people. He wants us to understand that wisdom's not just about ourselves, but about others. And so there's five things that mark how these people in this city live together. Let me state them all positively and move on. In this city, the individuals treat others with value significance. In this city, uh, they treat others with great uh, dignity. They're truthful to them and about them. In this city, they trust the counsel of others. They listen to one another. And in this city, they partner only with people like themselves, people who are wise in the eyes of God. And in this city, the people are gracious and kind to one another. 
And it seems to be as well that King Solomon tells his son about how they plan for the future, not just how they live together, but verses 18 through 22. You used to look at some of the imagery there, uh, imagery about uh, earning something, about sowing, you know, planting something that you'll one day harvest. Uh, imagery in verse 19 about how to uh, live, how to die. Verse 21 is about punishment and about deliverance. How they plan for the future is they count on a future that comes from God. Look at verse 18. The one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Look at verse 19. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. Look at verse 20. Those of blameless ways are his delight, God's delight. In verse 21, the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. How do they plan for the future in this city? If they're wise, they trust the promises of God. I'm sure we don't need to look at 18, 19, 20, and 21 as promises that we can count on as Christian people in the present age. It's a proverb and not a promise. We uh, know uh, good and blameless people who uh, suffer immeasurably. They, they do all of these five things that someone ought to do in a wise city, and yet they suffer. But this is still a promise. God will make his children more successful than they can possibly imagine. Even if there is suffering and hurt, marginalization and persecution in this present age, the glory of God is going to put all of that suffering into perspective. One day, as we read from the lips of Paul, one day all of this suffering will be put into proper perspective. Because the people in this city know that God will judge That'll judge. By the way, in Proverbs, so often do we have close to the, these great and grand promises, we have judgment as well. God makes a promise, but at the same time, he is judging those who refuse to fear him, to walk upright before him. God, you see, knows the motives of those who are foolish, who refuse to fear him. But God knows our motives as Christian people as well. Proverbs are about changing our behavior. Proverbs are about understanding who we are and how we act and being reminded that God has great promises for all of his children, but you also need to know that God understands your heart and your motives. And that's why I think this last verse is really about us. God sees our heart. He knows our motives. And you might smirk at me looking at verse 22 when I say this, but it is good for the Christian to look for that gold-ringed snout on their own face. Why is that good? Because to dress up a pig is for an unclean animal to find its own worth let me just think about that. A pig, of course, can't put a hoop in its own nose, but you get the picture. It's an unclean animal trying to dress itself up. Does that ever describe your heart? It describes my heart at times. Trying to dress myself up so that I earn God's favor, and it's absurd. 
when we don't take God's commands for personal holiness seriously, this is what we end up doing. We're acting a bit, we're playing a part, but we don't really mean it. And we forget about 18 through 22, where God reminds us that he sees our heart. And in fact, look at verse 22, see the word discretion. God sees your and my discretion. Gold hoop in your snout or not. It's for us, a reminder, Christian. He understands your motives. He understands everything about you. Don't dress yourself up with a hoop. This whole imagery of city, I want to challenge us to understand as an, as an image of the church. The Christian is always looking forward to this great city to come. Uh, Abraham was looking forward to a city. He's living in a tent, and the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham looked forward to a city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. He looked forward to a city that was prepared for him, but we don't live there yet. It's a city to come. But at the same time, church family body of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to envision that city, city to come, right now. The life that we live today as Christians is sometimes in Scripture referred to as life in a city. Christianity is described in astoundingly elevated terms at the beginning of Hebrew 12. Just listen to this. When the writer of Hebrew says, you have come to, uh, the Mount, come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, does he mean that's some, something that happens in the future or something that happens now? Christian, welcome to the family of God. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. That's who you are now. As a Christian, you belong to God's city. You'll experience it more fully in the future, but you belong right now. And this is actually really important for us because we tend to forget that the world to come invades the present age. But it does. In the Bible, we see the word city a lot, but you heard this morning the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus uses that word city, he's not speaking literally, he's speaking metaphorically. He says that a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste in no city at all. That's what he says in Matthew Matthew 12. But then there's Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And the Bible is so very clear to us Christians. Jesus is the true light of the world. And we as Christians not only walk in that light, but we share that light. Your personal holiness, your wisdom is not just about you. And it's not even just about the community. Jesus says that we are the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the image of a city that's set on a hill is an image of the converted body of Jesus Christ, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, living in holiness while at the same time being persecuted for their faith, serving as salt of the earth, light of the world. And in this way, in this way, 
The church body is a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Look, we all know what it's like to understand wisdom as something that's only about my personal goals. Wisdom is about protecting my money, about saving for retirement, making my way through this world in a secure and happy way. But wisdom's about the church community. Wisdom is about your brother and your sister. And if we're saved by Christ, we live our lives together for his glory. And as we do so, we actually bring his glory to bear on a watching world, even as we are persecuted. Wisdom is about the people of God more than just yourself. And so walking in wisdom, brother and sister, it's not just about you, me. It's about the community of Jesus. Walking in wisdom is about the community of Jesus watched by the world. Let's not forget that. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we're grateful for uh, King Solomon and uh, his uh, Holy Spirit-guided words to his son. We're grateful for the expansive nature of wisdom. The things that we think and say and do, well, Father, they seem to have eternal consequence. And we're grateful for that. But we see that wisdom in the church is wisdom of an entirely different order from wisdom in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.